Revelation chapter 2. By way of introduction, I'll just introduce it this way. How many of y'all have ever been church shopping? Church shopping, that's a treat, isn't it, to go church shopping? It's a mixed bag when you go church shopping. Never know quite what you're going to get. Now, sometimes when you go church shopping, you know right away, this ain't the place for me. You know, they break out the box of snakes and you're like, I'm out of here, you know. Or people are flopping around on the floor like a fish. That's always kind of like a, a cue where, man, I don't know if I'm a fit here. Um, I was going to say something. Just checked that. So, um, <laughs> when, I, I never forget when we were starting our first church, Revival. Um, we, uh, we were in the days of small things, humble things. We were meeting in this dingy, dirty uh, little room uh, in this cl- in, in the, the school that was a hundred years old, uh, and it was it was just it, it was humble days, man. And no joke, we bought our sound system from a bar, so so the, the speakers were just saturated in alcohol, like you could smell them, you know. And I'll never forget one day this gal comes in and she's church shopping, so she comes into our humble little midst. And I kid you not, a mouse comes running out of the speaker, (laughs) runs right across the floor. This gal picks her legs up, sitting in the chair, holds her legs up in the air, her feet off the ground for like 10 full minutes. Like she didn't have to go to the gym and do a leg workout for the week, I'm sure. She, she, she has her, her Bible in her lap now and her purse in her lap and her legs held off the floor. We never saw her again. She said, this church is not for me. Now, sometimes in church shopping, you find a church that, that you think maybe is for you, but it takes a little while. You know, you, you got to be there for a few weeks or several months to figure out who are they, what are they all about, do I fit here? And, and the point is you have to assess a church, right? You, you got to make sure it's a healthy fit. You got to make sure that the teaching is biblical, that the doctrine is sound, that the worship is God honoring, that the children's ministry is safe, that it's engaging, that it's Christ-centered. Well, as we move now from chapter 1 of Revelation into chapter 2 of Revelation, we find that just as we assess churches, so also God assesses churches. But God is not assessing churches in order to attend them. He is assessing churches in order to mend them. And as I like to say frequently, the church is us, you and me, the person sitting next to you. It's, it's us individually and us gathering together corporately. And so when we see here in chapter 2 of, of the book of Revelation where God is starting to assess different churches, well, what he's doing is, yes, he's assessing them corporately, but he's also assessing them individually. And what that means for you is that as we go through this and we see God's assessment of these different churches, well, it's instructive for us. See, maybe today you need mending. And, and, and God assessing the church, again, he's not assessing it to attend it. He's assessing it to mend it. Maybe you need mending. Maybe today, you know, the, you realize as God assesses you, Well, that there's stuff there to see. That, you know, maybe nobody else knows about it, but you know it. And God knows it. And so as we go through this, 
Today, I pray that you would allow the Lord to speak to your heart, that we wouldn't see this historically as some church that existed 2,000 years ago. It certainly is that. But God's assessment of this church, Jesus Christ, as he assesses this church, well, hey, let his light shine into your heart because maybe there's some things in your life that God's word would speak to today that God would put his finger on and he would say, yeah, that's you. Yes, I saw this in them, but you know what? I'm, I'm seeing this in you or I'm not seeing this in you, whatever the case may be. So, so we need to pay close attention. Hey, God, speak to me today. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now Jesus here, he's, he's speaking in the same imagery that he used in chapter 1. And as we saw last week, these the symbols mean something. The angels of the churches, that's symbolic, uh, and it represents the pastors of these seven specific churches that are in that, that region of, of modern-day Turkey. And so, uh, so as he, he says uh, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, hey, the angel is speaking of the pastors of that church. And then he, he uses this phrase, uh, uh, he says, which you, he says, um, sorry, wrong chapter. Uh, he, he says, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That, that, that phrase or that, 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 that title, seven stars, uh, it's also a symbol. Um, and, and it represents the pastor's of every church, not just these seven specific church that he's speaking to, but the pastors of every church. The number of seven in the Bible is very significant. It's the number of completion or fullness. And, and so he's speaking to, to, to every church. And the, the point is, is that Jesus doesn't have dominion just over certain pastors. No, he has dominion over every pastor. And then we see something else symbolic here in verse 1. We see that uh, the lampstands, the, the lampstands that he talks about. I hold the seven stars, in, holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the, here in his midst of the seven golden lampstands. And those lampstands are symbolic. They represent the church. Jesus told his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp uh, and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, why will they glorify their Father in heaven or, their, or God in heaven? Well, because we are the light of the world, and the light that is in us is Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel. He said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here in this opening verse of Revelation chapter 2. He says, Listen, I'm walking in your midst. I hold every pastor in my right hand. And that phrase, right hand, it's significant. In fact, you might want to circle it in your Bibles. And, and, and nearby, you could write symbol of strength and power. That's what that, when he says, I hold the, the stars in my right hand, hey, this is a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of power. In other words, Jesus says, look, you're not in charge around here. I am. 
And, and, and Jesus, you know, he, when he was talking to Peter, he, he told him, he says, look, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And, and so Jesus says here, listen up, I got something to say to you, and you need to hear me, because listen, the church belongs to me. You belong to me. It's mine. Now, this is an important observation, and, and it's going to be our first point, if you want to write down the first point. Jesus is actively involved in his church. Jesus is actively involved in his church. Now, let me tell you why this is important. It's important, and we ought to kind of camp out here for a minute, because it answers a very common misconception about God. What is that misconception, you ask? Well, I'll describe it this way. There was a book written uh, about 15 years ago, um, and the title of the book was called Soul Searching. And, and it, it was basically a, a couple of sociologists, uh, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, they interviewed 3,000 Christian teenagers, teenagers who professed faith in Christ. And, and so they wanted to know one fundamental question, what do you believe about God? What is it that you believe about God? And so... As they began to go through this, for their research, what they did is they mapped the prevailing belief system held by teenagers at the turn of the 21st century, okay? They termed the belief system in, in the results of their research, they said, what is it that, that the teenagers of today, and I would just remind you that this was written at the turn of this century, and so basically this comprises all the subjects of their, of their study are now in their 30s. And so, so you, I say that for the sake of relevance because it has a great impact on our society right now, okay? And so they, they, they said, what is the belief system? And they, they came up with a, with a phrase or with a, with, a, with a title to describe what the belief system was, and they called it moral therapeutic deism, Moral therapeutic deism. Now, there's five basic points of this belief system, okay? First one is this. What do they believe? Well, number one, they believe that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That was the first of five main points of their belief system. Their second point of their belief system was this, that they believed God wants people to be good nice, and fair to each other. Now, sounds good so far, right? I mean, that, that, that fits with our Bible. That's good so far. Here's where it starts to turn. Number three, here's what they believe, central tenet of their faith. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. The fourth point of the five points of their faith is this. God doesn't need to be involved in our life except when he's needed to fix a problem. Does that sound familiar, right? The fifth point is that good people go to heaven when they die. These were the five basic points among these 3,000 teenagers that they interviewed, now young adults in most of our churches, and this is their belief system. So moral therapeutic deism is the prevailing belief system in many churches today. Because they've all grown up now. They all got families of their own. 
they bring this belief system with them to church and they seek out to find churches that are going to fit in this belief system. And sadly, there's, there's many of them. Now, let me break this down. Moral, therapeutic, deism. Moral, okay? Their belief system is moral uh, because it takes a moralistic approach to life, right? Be good, be fair, be nice, okay? So that's the first part. It's also therapeutic. Why? Well, because it provides therapeutic benefits to its adherents, okay? In other words, instead of having responsibility, personal responsibility to things like repentance from sin or living as a servant of God or building character through suffering, all fundamentals to our faith, all biblical foundational truths, instead of having responsibilities to those things, no, it, it, it relegates God to a genie in a bottle. It, it speaks directly to the fourth point of their, their, doctrine, their fundamental doctrinal beliefs, which is, again, that God doesn't need to be involved in our life except to fix our problems. Okay, And so, so this is the therapeutic aspect of it. So it's moral, it's therapeutic, and listen, their belief system is also deistic. Now, deism is essentially this. It's the belief that there's a God who created the world, but he doesn't intervene in its affairs. Okay. Now, there's, there's a thing called classic deism. Deism has been around for a long time, 1600s, 1700s. As a matter of fact, Benjamin Franklin was himself a deist. And so a deist believes this, this classic definition of deism. It holds to the belief that God created everything and then he split, okay? It's like he created everything and now he's out of here. And, and now we are totally on our own. God helps those who helps themselves kind of thing. It, it, it's kind of like the, hung, the Hunger Games, you know, good luck, and may the odds ever be in your favor. You know, that's, that's classic deism. Now, moral therapeutic deism uh, is that they believe that, look, God created everything, and he split, but he's still on call, okay? And so the way the authors put it is this. They say, hey, God is selectively available for taking care of our needs. He's something like a combination between a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He's always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise in our life. He helps his people to feel better about themselves. And here's the key. He does not become too personally involved in the process. Now, who's really God in that belief system? You are. You're God in that belief system. But that's not what the Bible teaches. See, the Bible says, look, Jesus here in our text says, I'm walking in your midst. I hold every pastor in my right hand because the church and everyone in it belongs to me. Now, the point of application here and that we need to take a walk with and that Jesus starts with is to say, look, yeah, you ain't left in yourself, to yourself. You're not the captain of your own ship. I'm in charge. I made you. I gave you life. And I demand that you will worship me with your life. I'm not around to be some cosmic genie. And so when I start pointing out things in your life that, that, are, that are good, that I want you to, to encourage you to keep doing, well, then you need to keep doing that. And when I point things out in your life that are not good, hey, listen, you need to remember, I'm not your genie. 
It's not like you're God and I'm the one that's subservient to answer all your wishes and that you can just you know, pick and choose the things that I would say to you to, which you're going to follow, which you're going to adhere to. We need to keep that in mind because don't you know that God says things to us that we don't want to hear? God has that, that tendency, that bothersome tendency to put his finger right on the thing that you love and he says, I hate that. And now you got to go, well, but God, I love it. He's like, well, who, who, do you, who do you love more? You love that thing or are you going to love me? And so we have to understand that, no, we don't live by a belief system that, hey, God's just a helpful guy to have around. I could use a little patience right now, God. I could use a little help with my business right now, God. I could, I could use, you know, you, hey, I got this problem with this coworker. Would you, would you kill him, God? You know, we can't, we can't just, you know, order God around. We have to present our lives, as the Bible says, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. The idea is we present our life. We set it near to God. We let go. We take our hands off it. We go, God, you, you're God. I'm not. So when you speak, I'm going to listen. So because you belong to Jesus and because he's actively involved in your life, in my life, in our life, he says now, verse 2 and 3, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not and have found them liars Right? And so he goes through this list. He, he says, this is, this is what I've seen. And he says, verse 3, you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Second point, if you're taking notes, not only is Jesus actively involved in his church, number one, but number two, Jesus knows our works. He knows our works. Now, Jesus here, he's, he lists five practices of the church in Ephesus that are worthy of praise. By the way, let me just say this up front. Our tendency when we read the Bible is to see ourselves as the good guys and Satan and the people that blow it in the Bible story as the bad guys. So we always, we always paint ourselves as the good guys. So the, 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 the problem with that is that we ain't always the good guys. <laughs> And, and so, you know, the old Western, you know, the, the, the good guy wears the white hat and the bad guy wears the black hat. Listen, you all got a black hat on, okay? And, and so what we need to understand when we read this, when, and here's what I want you to hear. When Jesus points out to this church, he says, hey, look, there's five things I want to commend you for. Well, our, our, the, the danger here is that we'll read through this and we won't take a walk with it ourselves, we, in other words, we'll go, oh, you know, that's cool that, that the Ephesians did all of these things. What's the one thing in here that they didn't do right that I got to work on? No. We have to answer the question as Jesus commends them for the good things that they did. We have to answer the question, am I, am I doing that as they were doing that? Or in his, calm, in, in, in his, in his encouragement and, and in his approval of the things that they've done, is he, you know, is, as he commends them for those things, would he condemn us, you and me, for those things? We have to answer that. And so Jesus knows our works. There's five practices 
of this church in Ephesus Ephesus that are worthy of his praise. Here's the first one he says. They were a serving church. Notice there in verse 2, he says, I know your works. I know your works. Now, when Jesus commends them for their works, what he's not saying is, hey, you've got to work for your salvation. Hey, I commend you for working really hard to, 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 be, to be a Christian and, and, you know, to earn your salvation. He's not saying that. Has, has, it's not implying it's the working for your salvation. It's the working out of your salvation. Paul said this, by the way, to this same church, this church of Ephesus, 30 years earlier when he wrote the book of Ephesians. He said to them, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, hey, I know your works. They're good question of application for us is to say, are my works good? Am I working out my salvation as I ought to work? Just maybe just jot that down, a question. How are my works? Take a walk with it this week. So, so, so they're a serving church. Secondly, Jesus commends them for being a sacrificing church. He says there also in verse 2, he says, he says, I know your works. And he says, I know your labor." Now, we might say, oh, works, labor, it's the same thing. It is not the same thing. That word labor, what it really means is to toil to the point of exhaustion. Reliance VBS, anyone? Okay? If you've served at VBS, you know what it is to toil to the point of exhaustion. And, and, and I'll just throw this out here. It's not my notes, but, but, you know, a lot of times what happens is that we as people, as human beings, we have a tendency to, to be, you know, live our lives on the margins. We're either all in or we're all out. Very few people live their lives in balance. So, so there is a risk of somebody who's just totally being foot, to the, you know, if Satan can't get you to take your foot off the gas and get you to put it to the floor. So you wrap your life around a tree, you know. But it's all too often the tendency of Christians that what happens is, is that they labor to the point of exhaustion. They have works in their lives, and what happens is, look, what is it to labor to the point of exhaustion? I'll I'll sum it up in one word. It's sacrificial. It's sacrificial to live your life like that. And what I've noticed is that frequently what will happen is when Christians begin to sacrifice, well, what is a sacrifice by definition is painful. It, it's costly. And so a lot of times when, when Christians begin to have to pay a cost in their sacrificial service, they'll have a tendency to go, well, I, I, this, this can't be of God because, because it, you know, this requires sacrifice. Not necessarily. I mean, you let the Holy Spirit be your guide. You don't let Pastor Ted be your guide in terms of what, what, is, what God's calling you to do. But that's the key. You have to ask God, what are you calling me to do? When we planted our first church, the gates of hell tried to prevail against us. It was horrible. My wife had a business. She got sick. She lost her business. My friend, <clears throat> the other couple that started the church with us, he, he didn't lose his business, but he almost lost his business, and he went bankrupt in trying to rebuild this thing. And, and I could go on and on, sickness, illness, and attack, and, 
And we had a guy come up to us. It's a guy that was sort of semi-involved in the church at the time. And he's like, hey, you know, maybe God doesn't want there to be a church in Menifee. And, and we said, you know what? No. This, this is painful and it's sacrificial. But, it, but we know for sure that this is what God has called us to do. And thank God that we did that. Thank God that we didn't tap out and go, oh, well, you know what? Price is just too steep. And so you have to answer that question for yourself. So, so they, they're, they're, a, they're a serving church. They're a sacrificing church. And the next thing, the next practice that is worthy of praise that Jesus commends them for, there in verse 2 he says that they're a steadfast church. He says, I know your patience. Now, patience, there's another word that if you wanted to circle nearby, you could write this. You could write enduring under trial. And, or, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a good thing for us to understand, to endure under trial. If you've read through the book of Acts, you know that Paul, after he planted the church of Ephesus, he went on after a couple of years to go plant other churches, and he's getting ready uh, to, 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 to go back to Jerusalem, and he meets up with the Ephesian elders. He, he, he tells them, look, I, I'm not going to see you guys again. And I'll encourage you guys in, in you know, moving forward what, what you need to focus on. And he cautions them there about, you know, false teachers. And he says, you know what, beware of false teachers. And he, and he shares with them, look, you're going to go through trials. And as Paul's warning them, he begins to share some of his own trials and the tears and the hardship that he went through. But then he says this, something very important. He says, but none of these things move me. See, that's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to move you. He wants to move you off the path of following after, pressing after the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and just, just living your life for him. And so as the enemy attacks in your life, and, and as the, the course of life just begins to take its toll, the enemy will tempt you and try to move you off of the path that you're on. And, and so Jesus says to this church in, in Ephesus, you know, essentially, hey, you got, you got the memo. You know, Paul exhorted you to this, he exhorted your elders to this, and you guys have been faithful. You are a steadfast church. You're patient to endure under the trials. And, and so, man, awesome. Next, fourth point that, that Jesus points out to commend him for, he says, hey, look, you're a, stead, you're a separated church. He says there in verse 2, you can't bear those who are evil, and you, and you test them. See, you know, and he's going to add, by the way, when we read through, down through verse 6, he says, you also hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, nobody knows exactly what their deeds were, but we have sort of an idea. Basically, they taught that it was okay to mix pagan practices with Christian practices. And, and what Paul says to this church in Ephesus, he goes, you guys, you're a separated church. Or what, what Jesus says to him, he says, you're a separated church. You, 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 you can't stand those who are evil, and, and you, you're very careful to test those that, that come in and, and want to, to, to bring in false doctrine or to lead you astray. Now, an, an understanding here of the, of the city of Ephesus and of the culture in Ephesus is helpful here as we consider that they're a separated church. The city of Ephesus 
I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, the church of Ephesus. I'm talking about the city of Ephesus. The city was known as the Jewel of Asia. And it was the center of culture, of commerce, of learning, of wealth, of religion, both the Christian religion and pagan religions, and of entertainment. And not surprisingly, it was also the center of sin. The city of Ephesus and the, and the, the people, and by the way, the, the population there would swell sometimes to about a million people. Very, very key place. And they worshipped Bacchus, the god of wine. They worshipped Diana, the goddess of sex. In fact, the temple of Diana was in Ephesus. It was considered one of the seven modern or the, the seven wonders of the world. And, and in fact, those that saw the temple of Diana said it, that it doesn't compare to the other six wonders of the world. It is, it is just, um, you know, this amazing, magnificent structure. It had, you know, something like, you know, a hundred columns that were like 60 feet tall. And its staircase was made out of one huge vine that had been carved. And it was this very, you know, opulent thing. And, and the goddess, uh, Diana, was, was the goddess of sex, and so she was worshipped with sex. There was a, a thousand temple prostitutes, and the way that people would worship is that they would engage in sex with these prostitutes and, and you know, pay the money and all. And as you might imagine, in a port city with a bunch of sailors, this was a very popular religion. This is the culture that they lived in. It was also a culture, culture that was steeped in sorcery and witchcraft. It was widespread. It's interesting if you read in Acts chapter 19 when, when Paul goes there and he begins his work, basically what happens is he takes over for Aquila and Priscilla and Barnabas who were there before him just you know, ministering and doing, doing a work to, to, to bring up disciples. Paul gets there, he starts a church. They met in a school, by the way, just like we do. Uh, they, they, they met in the school of Tyrannus. He was there for two years. And the impact in two short years was, was amazing. Nothing short of miraculous. I mean, the whole town began to change. There's, a, there's an account in, in, in Acts 19 where the people came and they were convicted and they wanted to burn all their, their witchcraft and sorcery materials Modern equivalent, like $13 million worth of stuff they just threw into the fire to repent of it. In fact, the, the change in Ephesus was so overwhelming that the Roman emperor sent a guy down there by the name of Pliny to check out what's, what's going on in Ephesus. And so Pliny, when he came back, he reported that the Christians in the city were so numerous that the heathen temples were almost completely deserted. This is the impact that, that, that Paul and the church there in Ephesus had completely changed the city. The modern equivalent would be that that's, you, you plant a church in Las Vegas and all of a sudden somebody goes, I don't know what to say, all the casinos are empty, man. It's like a ghost town there. We would call that a beautiful miracle. What's going on in Ephesus was a beautiful miracle. And this is why when Paul left, he told the Ephesian elders, look, you need to stay on guard for false teachers. And Jesus now commending them 30 years later, saying, you got the memo, you're doing it, and I commend you for that. 
Well, the fifth practice that, that Jesus commends them for is that they were a suffering church. You see that in verse three, verse 3. He basically says, look, you have persevered with patience and you've labored in my name without becoming weary. They're a suffering church. Now, again, point of application for us in reading through these five commendations is to answer the question, are these traits in me? Do I manifest them? I need to understand that God calls these good. Jesus commends these traits. Galatians 6.9 tells us, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So the Ephesians were serving, they're sacrificing, they're steadfast, they're separated, they're suffering, but... Jesus has one thing to say to them. They're also a straying church. They're a straying church. Look there at verse seven or verse four. Jesus says, "Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." But this you have, that you also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That would be the Lord speaking to you and to me. Hey, if you've got an ear, listen up what I'm saying. Take it to heart. To him who overcomes, I will give to, give, um, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of of the paradise of God. So, Ephesus was a straying church. They had all of these things that they were doing, but Jesus said, you've left your first love. They're doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. It's sad. Jesus gives a warning here. He says, look, Remember, repent, go back and do the first works. Remember, repent, repeat is the idea. And he says, if you don't, I'm going to come to you quickly and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, you won't be a church that meets anymore. If you go to Ephesus today, there's nothing there. It's a big old pile of rubble. Nothing left of this city that was. Nothing left of this church that was. How did it happen? They left their first love. You you go down to the beach, right? And uh, and what happens? You go out and you're, you're there and you're swimming. And then all of a sudden you come up out of the beach and you go up on, you go up onto the sand, out of the water, you go up on the sand and you're like, somebody stole all my stuff. Now, chances are they didn't steal your stuff. Chances are you drifted. That's what, ha- that's what happens. It used to happen to me all the time. You just come up and you're out and you're like, holy moly, I'm like 300 yards down from where I started. Then you got the long walk back up the beach to where, to where you were. You know, I've married a lot of people. Married a lot of people in this church. And one of the, one of the, the 
most heartbreaking things for me as a pastor is when I see marriages end in divorce. People that I have married, their marriages have ended in divorce. And in every instance, what happened? They drifted. And, and like this church, for years, they did many commendable things in the relationship. They were steadfast, they were sacrificing, they were serving, but somewhere along the way, they left their love. Now, notice what Jesus says here. He, he doesn't say, they, you've lost your first love. He says, no, you've left your first love. Important distinction there. You ever left something that you love? I remember I heard a story on the news several years ago. There was a couple, and they, they had a, a newborn child. A couple kid was, you know, maybe two months old. And they, they went on their first road trip. They were going to see, you know, the grandparents and all. They're so excited. They're on the trip. They go down. They stop at a truck stop. They go in. And, you know, when you're traveling with kids, it's not like, you know, when, when you're just the two of you and you're freewheeling. It's now it's, everything's just a procession. Everything's a big production, you know. And so they can't just go swinging through and grab something to go and on their way, and the kid needs a diaper change, and, you know, mom needs to feed him the whole bit. So they stop, they get out, they go into the truck stop, they have lunch, and so they get back on the road. They're about 10 miles down the road. They realize they forgot something back at the truck stop. They forgot their baby back at the truck stop. Just left, can you imagine that 10, 10 miles on the way back? Just like... They got back, they found the kid, they were reunited, and, you know, it's a happy, happy ending. Um, you ever left your kids anywhere? It's just, you know, I, I don't, I, actually, I don't think I ever have. Um, my wife, if she were here, she'd probably correct me, but I don't, I don't think I have. My, my daughter this week left her kid at Awana, totally forgot her there. She was like, I forgot my kid. Everybody on, you know, we got a family feed on, on uh, text messages, everybody's just hassling her, ah, you know, you forgot your kid. Um, what did this couple have to do when they left their, their baby behind? They had to remember, they had to repent, and they had to repeat. They had to remember that they'd left their love. They had to repent, they had to turn around and hightail it back to where they'd left that love. And then they needed to repeat. They needed to do the first works. They needed to tend to, love, care, and, and nurture that child. My question for you today is, would Jesus say to you today that you've left your first love? Would, would If you took a walk with this, would Jesus speak to you today and say, Man, you're doing this right, you're doing that right, you're serving, you're sacrificing, all these things. But you know what? Your relationship with me has changed. 